This is Undisciplined. I'm Matthew LaPlante. It's been 13 years since an organization called Health in Harmony opened a healthcare clinic near a national park in Borneo. And the idea of the clinic, which was opened with the help and support of local community members, was to serve the region's residents, many of whom couldn't pay for health care, but who could offer barter in trade for the clinic services. So instead of money, the clinic took tree seedlings, it took handicrafts, and it accepted labor in trade. And in collaboration with regional district leaders, the clinic also gave discounts to people from villages that could show that they'd helped reduce instances of illegal logging. Now, researchers have analyzed more than 10 years of data from the clinic's patient records, as well as satellite pictures from the forest over the region. And what they found is quite striking. First off, residents are healthier, and there have been large declines in malaria and tuberculosis and diabetes. But at the same time, there's been a 70% reduction in deforestation compared to other areas during that time. That's thousands of acres of rainforest that have been preserved, apparently as a result of this health-centric intervention. The takeaway, the research team says, is that accessible and affordable health care could be a powerful tool for addressing the climate crisis. Joining us today are three members of that team. Calling in from the San Francisco Bay Area is Health and Harmony founder, Kennery Webb. Hey, Kennery. Hi, it's such an honor and a delight to be here. Thank you for having me. And also in the Bay Area is Isabel Jones, a postdoctoral researcher at the University of California, Berkeley, and the lead author of the study. Isabel, welcome. Hi, Matthew. Thanks for having us. And finally, from Stanford University, is Sana Sokolo, a disease ecologist, veterinarian, and associate fellow at Stanford Center for Innovation and Global Health. Hi, Sana. Hi, Matthew. Great to be here. So let's start today by talking about how Health in Harmony came to be. Kinnery, you were an undergrad when you first visited Borneo, and you went to medical school wanting to return there. Yeah, I first went to study orangutans and I spent a year deep in the rainforest. It was a magical and incredible time, but also a very sad time because while I was studying the orangutans, I could hear the chainsaws in the distance and the giant, giant rainforest trees falling. And I really hated those loggers and I assumed that they must be evil people. But then when I got to know them, I discovered that actually they were often just logging to pay for access to healthcare. They're subsistence farmers. They're making, you know, growing enough food to eat and be able to plan for expenses. But one medical emergency can cost an entire year's income. And when you have very few options for getting quick liquidity or fast cash, except cutting down rainforest trees, you'll do that if you have to in order to be able to access care. Did you know before you went that you were destined for medical school or was that the moment you went, ah, I'm going to go to medical school and I'm going to do something to help these people? Yeah, I mean, I sort of saw myself following in Jane Goodall's footsteps. But then when I got there, I realized, what's the point of studying orangutans if they all are extinct? And I decided, actually, it was the first time it ever occurred to me, but I decided to go to medical school. Tell me a little bit more about the people living in this area. So they 
are very, very poor. It is a region with very few resources, largely because of a long history of colonization. And they all care about the forest. They really want to protect the forest. They just didn't have a choice. You decide you're going to open a clinic in this area. What were the biggest obstacles to launching this facility? Well, the first thing I want to say is that we didn't just do that. We spent an entire year doing what I call radical listening, which is that we said to the communities around the park, we said, you all are guardians of this precious rainforest that is valuable to the whole world. Just to give you an example, the amount of carbon in the forest that was remaining, even though the logging was rampant at that time, was equivalent to 14 years of carbon emissions from San Francisco. And really, this national park is considered the jewel in the crown of national parks in Indonesia. But people were logging it and they just they just didn't have a choice. So we asked them, what would you need as a thank you from the world community so that you could protect it? And what they said was access to high quality healthcare and training in organic farming. So you realize that there's this opportunity to couple healthcare and ecology. But what they were asking for and what you were doing I mean, was it completely clear at that point to you or did it take some trial and error to figure out how you were going to meet those needs? Yeah. Well, no, I didn't know how to do it. Right. (laughs) Super hard. Right. And we didn't design it ourselves. We designed it in close collaboration with the communities. What exactly would they need? Which aspects of care? Like ambulance service turned out to be incredibly important because they had very few ways to get to care. If someone was very sick and you couldn't run out on the back of a motorcycle and mobile clinics for communities that were very distant and inpatient care. So it wasn't just seeing what we normally think of as an outpatient clinic in the United States. It was kind of in between a hospital and a clinic. When you got the clinic up and running, you treated 3000 patients in your first nine months. I've got to figure At that point, you must have been thinking this is either a sign of success or a clue that we're all doomed. (laughs) Well, yeah, I mean, it's now been over 80,000 patient visits and people really needed the care and they needed to be able to afford it. And we were also training in regenerative agriculture so that people had an alternative. It was their ideas. How does it work when you build these agreements into the system with local leaders. You say, protect the forest and you'll get discounts in the healthcare. It's got to be mostly an honor system, right? No, I mean, I was very, very serious about radical listening. I knew that the experts were the local communities, but when it came to monitoring, I didn't ask them how to do it. It was the one part that I thought, well, they'll cheat, right? So we're going to have to figure out some other way of monitoring. Then we had to go back to the communities and say, help, we messed up. What do we do? And they actually came back with this really beautifully designed system where there are forest guardians all the way around the park. These are people from every community. And their job is not only to monitor the logging, but also to help each individual logging family find alternatives. Mm. And to also coordinate mobile clinics and coordinate regenerative agriculture training and things like that. So that has worked remarkably well. And we do have one outside person who then just confirms that that information is correct. And these people are called forest guardians? Yeah. In Indonesian, though, I almost prefer their name. They're called best friends of the forest. 
oh come on that's like the most perfect thing ever <laughs> they came up with it not me <laughs> because you engaged in this process from the outset of listening to the needs of the people in the area and then coupling this need with a global good were you pretty confident from the onset that it would work or were you still thinking man we're way out there yeah actually we had a journalist come out and visit us at one point and sort of on the side he said oh come on you don't really believe that you're going to be able to protect this national park do you and i was like no absolutely not (laughs) but you know The thing is, I just felt like, okay, I might be a fish swimming against a tsunami, but I have to swim in the right direction. Hmm. And I didn't think it would work, but it did. It worked beautifully. And that is thanks to the Stanford team who really have helped show how impactful it's been. Let me bring in a member of that team now, Isabel Jones. When did you first learn about Kinnery Webb's clinic and, and what was happening in Borneo? Yeah, I first learned about Kinnery and the program in Borneo thanks to Sana, who's on the call here, because she actually invited Kinnery to be a keynote speaker for a program that she was launching in studying what we call ecological levers for health, which are practices that we can do in the environment to improve human health outcomes. And it was really interesting for me because it was the first time that I had really thought of the reverse of what we were thinking about all the time and thinking about How does healthcare actually mediate how people interact with the environment? So we were always looking at infectious disease from the standpoint of changes in the environment and subsequent changes in human health. But here is this person coming in and telling us that the reverse interactions are also true. So that was the first time I learned about Health and Harmony. And then I ended up being an extraordinarily lucky PhD student with some time Mm. on my hands to take on a big data analysis project and got to lead this study in looking at the 10-year impact of the program. The region this clinic is in, like many places across the globe, has been really hard hit by deforestation. Can you put the extent of the deforestation into context? What was being lost and how fast was it being lost? So Borneo, I think it's well known for being a hotspot of deforestation. It's also a hotspot of biodiversity and carbon density in those forests. So people care a lot about conserving the forests, but we know that over the last century or so, about half of the forests on Borneo have been lost to deforestation. And this is a big deal because Indonesia as a country, which is an island archipelago, it contains just about 3% of the world's forests, but it contributes to over a third of carbon emissions. So protecting those forests and reducing carbon emissions from deforestation on Borneo, like the rest of Indonesia, is really important. What did you think you might see when you began evaluating the program's health and conservation impacts? You must have suspected there were good results happening and it was a good story. But what were you thinking you were going to see? We really had no idea what to expect going into this analysis. So we knew from Kinnery and other members of the Health and Harmony team that they were reporting really strong outcomes for the program. So from internal monitoring of their program, we knew that they were hearing from the local communities that they were reducing their illegal logging activity and that people were really valuing the healthcare system. But it was definitely 
in unknown once we brought in the objective satellite data to look at what was actually happening with the forest, what we were going to find. You have to steal yourself for being the person who douses this with cold water, right? Like, we're going to look at the forest data and see for sure. And it could have been an instance where the researcher has to come in and go, ah, guys, this isn't really actually working the way we think it, it should work. Yep, that was definitely a possibility and something that I did not want to happen. It would have been pretty painful. And I think actually when we first started looking at the satellite data and what was happening in that national park compared to other national parks, I think at first we almost doubted our methods because we were seeing such strong impacts of the program on conservation in that national park. And so we asked the question about how the program was impacting illegal logging from a lot of different angles. And it was pretty amazing how pretty much every different way that we looked at it, we were getting the same answer which was that the program was reducing illegal logging. Sana Sokolo, these results are just so cool. The impact is tremendous, but can it be replicated? Is this a model that is going to work in other places? Well, we don't know, but we do know that the circumstances that are experienced in Borneo that sort of led to this connection, that's really strong connection between healthcare gaps and poverty and forest loss and illegal logging, even in protected areas, is not unique to Borneo. So we do know that much of the world where the remaining tall, dense, biodiverse forests are, also are the places in the world with the most healthcare gaps. So we are pretty confident that these issues of healthcare gaps, poverty, and logging are probably linked pretty strongly in, in many other places where they co-occur geographically. The thing to note, though, about that thought is that we don't know for sure what the individual circumstances of all of those communities might be. And what's really remarkable here is that, yes, we saw really strong impacts, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the exact same program replicated in somewhere else would lead to those same impacts. We we know that the process that Kennery went through to talk to the communities and understand what their needs were and why they were logging was really foundational. I'll tell you that just having lots of discussions with Health and Harmony and their staff, they've had some preliminary conversations in other countries, including Madagascar and Brazil, and another park also in Borneo. And the need for healthcare has emerged as a driving force of potential illegal logging behaviors in all of those places. And so, yes, I think it can be replicated, but it certainly needs to go through the same process of really understanding what the local community needs are and what the drivers are in each place. Kennery, what are those conversations sounding like right now as you're exploring the possibility of moving this process, not this program, but this process into other places? So we have now fully started uh, in another national park in Borneo and in Madagascar and in Brazil. And this radical listening process has really found the exact same thing. The exact solutions are different, but the broad categories are often the same. Sana, you've suggested that programs like these could potentially pay for themselves as part of a carbon market. Talk about how that might work. We have tried to get creative about thinking about how this could be scaled successfully, both you know ecologically, but also financially scaled, and the challenges there. You know, some systems where 
governments can really enter into agreements to have third parties, for example, measure and calculate how much carbon is being stored or saved by certain programs and then receive financial payments for those. But really, it's not accessible to the smaller communities and the smaller non-governmental organizations like we were working with here. And so our vision is to somehow tap into some kind of maybe voluntary markets, but somehow be able to develop tools through this earth observation science, this science that would be open access and would use satellite information to observe the impacts objectively and report them and be able to sort of create something in parallel to the more formal programs that governments can tap into but where individuals or companies can offset their carbon emissions or their carbon footprints by voluntarily buying into programs that then can objectively report their impacts in a way that's really repeatable and doesn't require hiring a bunch of specialists for a lot of dollars that makes it really inaccessible to these local communities. I think that the other key component is that while poverty is a really big sort of mediator in the connection between health and healthcare and healthcare access and logging behavior in these remote places, just pure injection of cash just somehow may not build the level of trust that we found with these programs that probably led to some of their success. And therefore, our vision is to have the money that might be raised by these voluntary markets really go back into the community development projects like healthcare and really bring the benefits back to those communities in a way that perhaps just sort of cash moving around wouldn't be able to do. I just want to point out that when when Santa says it's not clear if we just gave cash to communities, whether or not that would work. Our experience is that that would not work. It would certainly help, but it's probably not enough. And the reason why is because the things people needed were things they couldn't buy, even if they had a lot of money. Mm -hmm. We invested about $5.2 million over the first 10 years of the program in these communities. And that included building a large medical center. And in return, these communities gave back about $65 million worth of carbon. So I prefer to view it as mutual thank yous to really see that these communities are not only giving back that much carbon, and that was just above crown carbon and just in the primary forest. It didn't even count the forest that regrew. And I just really want us to see this as much more holistic, right? And that these communities are not only given carbon, but they're giving water, they're giving biodiversity. It's, it's a beautiful gift, and we should be giving gifts back to them. Isabel, let me bring you back into this conversation. This whole thing that's sort of, you know, like a crazy, innovative idea. How important is it for us to have and pursue crazy, innovative ideas when it comes to the climate challenges that we're facing? I think crazy innovation is essential to addressing the climate challenge. And as we heard from Kennery, the innovation for this project really started with the local communities in coming up with the design for the program. And in terms of the science in trying to understand how this program was impacting human health and conservation outcomes, it took a lot of creativity and it took a lot of minds coming together. So there are over 15 authors on this paper and every single person contributed some creative idea in how to address this data. And that's because it's really hard to measure 
these outcomes that have really strong linkages. So we were measuring human health and healthcare access at the same time as we were measuring forest change. And we were also trying to understand if they were connected. And so we brought in people with expertise in ecological statistics, in health statistics, in econometrics, and all sorts of expertises to bring enough minds together from these different sectors that usually work alone to address this really multidisciplinary program. We talked just briefly about the health outcomes. I wanted to come back to that. Kennery, what does the state of health look like in the communities that have been impacted by this program? Well, the Stanford paper showed a 67% reduction in infant mortality. One of the things that's interesting about development is that infant mortality, if you can bring that down, it goes along with reductions in diseases across the board. And that's a huge reduction. And what we found in looking at the clinic database was that, yeah, I mean, we were seeing decreases in all the major diseases, malaria, tuberculosis, diarrhea. And then there were some things that we actually saw more commonly in the clinic, like upper respiratory infections, which are like colds and stuff. In the beginning, we only saw very, very serious things. And then over time, now we see like minor things, which is so exciting. I love it. Dan, what is the best way to share things like this? I mean, like, obviously, I'm glad you guys are here talking to Utah Public Radio. And there's been some good reporting on this. But how do you create an environment where people look at what's happened in Health and Harmony and say, ah, that's a model that perhaps we can pursue in the same way? So that it's not just Health and Harmony scaling it to the other places, but other people are taking these lessons and moving with them. You know, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, right? So in science, for sure, we want to put everything in the public sphere and have as many imitators as we can. Hopefully they learn the lessons, though, about not just replication, but imitation. So doing the whole process to figure out these connections, um, sort of break the links between healthcare gaps and illegal logging and solve these problems simultaneously and in the way that they should because they're so linked. Yeah, so the data itself is really important, but it's not enough. So we have to do these kinds of objective analyses so that there is evidence, an evidence base to understand these links. But there's certainly more to changing attitudes and changing behaviors, especially across such a broad and disparate group of cultures and you know places where these problems are happening. At Stanford, we are trying to work on sort of building programs that engage projects like this, but also engage really diverse perspectives and really diverse expertise, for example, artists and journalists. And, you know, we're trying to build like an artist in residence program, for example, around these health and environment linked problems. And I think pretty much uh, science definitely needs in this case to stick to their guns to get the really high quality data, but go beyond that. Really connect and collaborate across, really outside their comfort zone with the nonprofits themselves, like we've done here, and be able to translate their science into those kind of realms too. Like we're also proposing to have a graphic novelist come and work with some of our scientists. 
Isabel, what's the next steps in the research process here? You've looked at and evaluated 10 years of data. Are you going to continue keeping your eye on this as a research scientist? I definitely will continue to keep my eye on this. There's so much to do above and beyond what we were able to do for this study. In particular, the forests that we were studying and the conservation in those forests have potential to benefit humans in so many ways that we weren't able to measure. So there's potential that forest conservation might have even more feedbacks onto human health. For example, the forests that were conserved might support reductions in diarrheal disease by way of filtering water. And it may change the populations of mosquitoes that are local in these areas and might hopefully reduce the instances of mosquito-borne illnesses. And there are so many other ecosystem services that the forest provides that we weren't able to measure, but could really help us understand the full impact of forest conservation on human health and potentially show us how there's this reinforcing cycle between health, healthcare, and conservation. That's Isabel Jones. She is joining us today from UC Berkeley. Isabel, thank you. Thank you, Matt. We also heard today from Health and Harmony founder, Kinnery Webb. Kinnery, thanks for joining us. Such an honor, and thank you for getting the word out there. It's so important. And finally, Stanford ecologist Sana Sokolo, thank you for your time. Thanks, Matt. It was a great conversation. Undisciplined is a production of Utah Public Radio. And if you happen to live in Utah, you can listen to us every Thursday at 1030 a.m. on UPR. If you miss us then, you can listen to every episode of Undisciplined wherever you get your podcasts. Our producer is Naomi Ward. Our associate producer is Mia Dora. Our theme music is Little Idea by Benjamin Tissot. And I'm Matthew LaPlante. Thanks for listening. Now go have big ideas.